This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The following podcast contains explicit materials. It's Friday, May 27th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Vladimir Zelensky, the most heroic leader in the world, got into a war of words with a gnomic 99-year-old eminence Greece, more Greece than eminence, if you remember Henry Kissinger's record during the Vietnam War. Kissinger, speaking to the Davos Forum via video conferencing link, advised Ukraine and the world that, quote, negotiations need to begin in the next two months before it creates upheavals and tensions that will not be overcome, adding about ending the war in Ukraine. Pursuing the war beyond that point would not be about the freedom of Ukraine, but a new war against Russia itself. So he advised that Ukraine and the world treat a withdrawal to pre-invasion borders as acceptable. Ideally, uh, the dividing line should return to the status quo ante. The infamous proponent of real politic talking about an ideal solution to a country who stupefied expectations did not sit well with that country's leader. Zelensky also spoke to the world via video conferencing, not because he was too frail to travel to a Swiss resort, but because he was leading his country from a secure spot just outside the range of Russian attacks. The suggestion that the terms of the surrender be dictated to a perhaps wise, certainly wizened old Yoda, who had more than dabbled in the dark side, was rejected by the young Ukrainian president. We will not settle for Russia withdrawing and perhaps giving up a bit of land, said Zelensky. We will not appease. This is not Munich in 1938. Wow. Rousing, brave, well-stated. You want to follow this man into the fray. However, removing Kissinger himself from the deliberation, I think about what constitutes a successful outcome. If the Ukrainian people who are making all the sacrifices and are willingly fighting and willingly want to continue to do so, we in the West do not want to get in the way of those efforts. Putin is the worst person in the world. His weakening is a desirous outcome. However, Russia is a stable country of more than 100 million people. It's the eighth most populous nation in the world. And of the top 10, which collectively comprise more than half the Earth's population, I would say other than the United States, 
using the John Rawls standard of being born into a random strata of society, I don't know that I would pick any of the other countries to be randomly born into. In Russia, there is no starvation, no mass murder, no crushing poverty, no real sectarian violence, no slow rolling genocide within its borders. They don't, or didn't before the war, have masses wishing to emigrate, thus destabilizing their neighbors. They didn't export terror, though they do meddle with elections. All the other countries on the list, China, India, Pakistan, Nigeria, Mexico, Bangladesh, India, Brazil, are beset by at least some of those problems. The Arab Spring taught us, or should have, that even when you have a corrupt, oppressive strongman, at least he is strong. Deposing or seriously weakening a tyrant leads to chaos more surely than it does to flourishing. It would be great if Putin were defeated and then discarded. But I think the goal needs to be the liberation of Ukraine, not Russia. On the show today, in the spiel, your action demands an equal and immediate reaction. Well, actually, three weeks delayed, but that's okay. It's an Antoine Tig. All the mistakes that I've made will be acknowledged. But first, they don't call California the golden state for nothing. The budget surplus there is nearly $100 billion. Now, if you calculate gold as a 1850 per troy ounce, I make it to about 2,000 metric tons of gold, and that's just their surplus. But before they spend it, they've got fights to have, priorities to sort out, and restrictive decades-old spending caps to navigate. San Francisco Chronicle reporter Sophia Bolag is here on how to spend $100 billion more than you thought you had. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. New York State has a $13 billion budget surplus. Texas, according to their controller, Glenn Hagar, $25 billion. And then California. In the beginning of the year, California announced we're going to have a $45.7 billion budget surplus. Then the numbers were recrunched. It's going to be more than 50. Then a little while ago, Governor Gavin Newsom said it's going to be $76 billion. What is out now? is a proposed budget of $300 billion and a surplus of $97.5 billion. This is a bigger surplus than any state budget other than, you know, two or three. Uh, New York, Texas, and for some reason, Washington spends a lot on their state budget. Trying to get my head around this, guiding me through this procedure will be Sophia Bolag, who is the California politics reporter of the San Francisco Chronicle. She has worked for the LA Times and the Sacramento Bee and the AP, so she's well-positioned to explain what's going on in California and Sacramento. Sophia, welcome to The Gist. Thanks for having me. So is California doing something right, or did they do something wrong in that their previous budgeting was so off? Basically, the surplus number that you see that the state puts out is always an estimate. 
And uh, so I guess you could say they did something wrong in that their first number was so far off. It was it was too conservative of an estimate, at least when you compare it to the number that that Newsom put out uh, just recently, that ninety seven point five billion dollar surplus number, which is it's not just a record for California, but as you said, for the whole country, we've never seen a state surplus this big. So what I like to do is, um, I, I guess you probably do this too as a journalist, these numbers seem abstract and you don't know what to compare them to. So I compared them to other state budgets, which seems obvious enough. You know, the California budget surplus is more than the entire U.S. State Department is budgeted this year. The same far more than the Interior Department. So every ranger in every national park and upkeep on every national park, less than California just has in its surplus. And to talk about, let's talk, there are many programs we could talk about, and then we'll get to the complications. But I wanted to talk about homelessness because many people in California want to talk about this too. As I've been uh, covering this issue from afar, it seems like in terms of funding for behavioral health and uh, housing units, they're up to something like $16 billion that they're proposing to spend to fight homelessness. Uh, estimates say that there are about 150,000 homeless people in the state of California. So this would mean 100,000 per homelessness. Uh, are the homeless or uh, unhoused advocates saying that this is going to create a huge dent in the problem? So I think it's a little bit too early to say. I, I sat in on an editorial board interview that uh, the Chronicle's editorial board did with Newsom recently. Um, and, you know, he was asked by members of the editorial board, you know, California has such a large homeless population. You've poured all these billions of dollars um, to address the problem. A lot of that money that you're talking about has already been approved in past budget years. Um, you know, like when can people start seeing results, basically? And uh, what Newsom has has talked about is, um, you know, essentially that a lot of the problem has to do with cities and counties uh, having a lot of trouble approving new housing to build for, um, you know, not just for people who are homeless or at risk of becoming homeless, but just for the general California population. Um, we have a huge affordable housing crisis here. And so um, I think it has the potential to make a really big dent in the problem to really get a lot of people housed and get them the, you know, behavioral health treatment that they might need if they're homeless. Um, but it's not it's not a like snap your fingers and it happens right away kind of uh, situation. Right. I wouldn't expect it would be. But it does seem that much of the problem is an economic problem. And then there are sociological problems added to that. And then there are bureaucratic problems to try to solve the sociological problems. But at a certain point, there is enough money to overwhelm the obstacles. And, you know, if you do the math, I think the average rental unit for the whole state, which isn't going to be true for, you know, places like L.A. and certainly San Francisco, but for the whole state, could be a two bedroom at $3,000 doing the math on that seems like this amount of money can house all of the unhoused people in the state of California for something like four years. Now, 
as you say, some of this allocation is for all affordable housing. If we just put every person, or if you guys put every person who doesn't have a house in a house for a number of years, that doesn't solve the problem. More people will be homeless. But I do wonder at this point, do at least the advocates who really have wanted this much funding for many, many years, are their eyes wide? Are they are they optimistic, more optimistic now than they have been since you've been covering this problem? Yes, I, I would say that's definitely true. But I would also say that their, you know, specific uh, policy asks have not gone away. Like there's still things that they want beyond just the money. Um, so and and they're not all in agreement on exactly what needs to be done to solve the problem. But like one um, example is I, you know, I've talked to a lot of advocates who um, have been pushing for the Newsom administration to. Uh, you know, centralize its um, homelessness policies under one specific, uh, you know, agency or or cabinet secretary, because right now a lot of the affordable housing and and programs uh, aimed at uh, addressing homelessness are under sort of different state level agencies. And so like that's one example of some of the, the bureaucratic challenges that you sort of alluded to. Um, But yes, I mean, in terms of the amount of money, I think a lot of advocates in the affordable housing space are really pleased um, with this investment that Newsom and lawmakers have made and, and are preparing to make again this year. And then there is the initiative of the care courts, which is, you know, somewhere around 10,000 people with behavioral health problems. Um, Newsom's idea is to sort of separate them from the criminal courts. Some of the advocates uh, in the ACLU and other groups are against that. Uh, They fear this is just um, incarceration by another name. But I also was reading your reporting that this plan is actually for all the objections is sailing through the legislature, right? For the most part, there, um, and this is a little bit technical, but there there were two, originally two bills, one in each house, the, the Senate and the Assembly in California. And uh, one of them, the one that started, uh, I believe, in the Assembly, that one died before its first hearing. So the other bill has been uh, Going through the Senate, it just it's it's headed to the the full Senate floor. It passed through all of the committees it needed to pass through, um, but the hurdles that prevented that bill in the Assembly from moving forward does indicate that there might be some hurdles in that chamber that uh, you know the lawmakers who support this proposal and Newsom need to work through. Um, but yes, it is certainly moving along at the clip it would need to move to pass eventually this year. Are the constituencies against it or really uh, the coalitions, uh, if there are, of lawmakers who have objections, are they united on a certain ground, the civil rights ground, the um, criminal uh, incarceration ground, the funding ground, or is it just more like they have to, people are mostly in favor of it, they just have to work out the fine details? I would say there is a significant contingent of lawmakers and interest groups like the ACLU that you mentioned who are very concerned about the civil liberties implications of this proposal. Um, The Newsom administration has really uh, made it clear that they don't want this to be a forced treatment uh, proposal, but the opponents of this bill who have raised concerns about uh, you know, whether this would take away people's civil liberties have pointed out that, you know, this does put people in a, um, a process 
um, that you could start going, you know, down the path of putting people in a conservatorship or, you know, taking away their autonomy. And uh, that's just caused a lot of concern among civil liberties groups like the ACLU. And I think a lot of lawmakers are very uh, sympathetic to that perspective. Um, There are also concerns about cost. And I should say, um, I'm talking mostly about the the most recent sort of version of the bill. It was just amended late last week um, to add a, a housing component to ensure that um, you know people who are, are put through the process are able to be housed. Because that was something that a lot of advocates who like the idea of having um, you know a new a new system to get people into treatment to kind of try to convince people, um, you know, to get mental health and behavioral health treatment if they really need it, which is really the aim of this proposal. Um, Some of them who were supportive of that idea in concept said, look, if this does not have the funding and the requirements that counties, you know, put people in housing, if they're going through this process, um, it's really not going to be effective because there's a lot of people who really, you know, a big barrier to them um, getting well and getting their severe mental health problems under control is, you know, not having a roof over their head. Um, but it is something that that certainly lawmakers who are championing this proposal and the Newsom administration are, are listening to that uh, concern. And certainly this $97 billion surplus really helps um, the Newsom administration address concerns like that because there is just so much money that they can pour into problems like this. Right. So we've been talking about that one line item or a couple line items addressing homelessness. We could do that. I won't uh, spend the interview going line by line. But is there any issue, any group of either legislators or lobbyists or um, advocates who you've talked to who said this is this is the opportunity to really solve our issue long term? This is unprecedented and we're extremely optimistic about issue X. So when you say long term, this is where it gets into a kind of dicey area with the budget. And that is that, um, you know, lawmakers and Newsom are really constrained uh, with this surplus. They have so much money and it's such an opportunity for them to pour it into the issues that they you know think are most pressing in California. Um, but there's guardrails um, in state law that prevent lawmakers from allocating uh too much money over it. This is very complicated, but there's a there's a limit. There's a, a constitutional spending cap in state law. So there's there's that problem. But then there's also just you know if next year um, tax revenue declines, then you know there isn't money to fulfill that promise that lawmakers and Newsom have made to um, maintain that program if they made an ongoing expenditure. So and and a big chunk of that money um, or those proposed expenditures that they're Uh, talking about are into reserve funds. Um, So they're not talking about spending it all at once. They are talking about putting a lot of it, many billions into, you know, reserve funds, uh, so-called California, so-called rainy day fund for a future date when there's not, um, you know, as much money to go around. Now tell me about the budget cap, the constitutionally mandated budget cap. Um, Can this be circumvented 
And the second question is, do economists or uh, good governance types recommend this? Because I know of no other states that actually have their hands tied extrajudicially by will of the people or will of the people who voted for it years ago. So it's a two-part question. How serious is the budget (laughs) cap and what do people think about it? Yeah, it is... um a very serious thing. It's it's part of state law. It was enacted via ballot measure. So it was uh, voters passed it into law um, and it instituted something called the GAN limit. Um, it's a very complicated uh, calculation that uh, lawmakers and the Newsom administration do every year to you know determine what the GAN limit is and whether uh, California is going to go over it, but essentially what it is, it's, it's a it's a state spending cap and it increases every year with inflation as I believe that the sort of mechanism that it, it goes up by, uh, you know, California has just been swimming in money for many years. And it's really because um, it heavily taxes, California heavily taxes its wealthiest earners, and they've been doing really, really well in recent years. And so the- um, Even if Elon has moved to Texas, (laughs) yes. Right, yes. There's still, you know, um, a lot of really, really wealthy people in California and a lot of really wealthy corporations that pay taxes here. There are ways for Newsom and lawmakers to sort of get around the spending cap um, that are, are, you know, laid out in the law. One is by spending on infrastructure. Um, Another way is by sending uh, direct checks to Californians. That's something um, that Newsom and lawmakers did in the last budget. They sent uh, checks to people who were under a certain income threshold. Um, and they're talking about doing that again this year, although that's one of the areas where there really isn't agreement between Newsom and lawmakers and where there's going to be a lot of debate. Essentially, Newsom wants to send out checks based on uh, to to people who have cars under a certain um, value. So if you have a, a super, super fancy car that's worth a lot of money, you wouldn't necessarily get a check, but pretty much everyone else who owns a vehicle would. Mm. And lawmakers have raised concerns that car ownership is not a good way of determining whether someone needs financial help. It should be determined based on income or some other um, more ecu- equitable measure. So um, that's getting away from your your GAN limit question a little bit, which is, um, I, th- I think you would ask, you know, do people think this is a good, a good way to do things? Um, and in fact, a lot of people have pointed to this huge surplus and said, well, this is an this is really good evidence that you're taxing Californians way too much. Um, that's something that Democrats disagree with. Um, but it's certainly a, an opinion that's held by um, a lot of more conservative groups and, and many voters here in California. So last question, what that raises, giving checks to people, what about in our inflationary times, uh, stimulus concerns? Have, have I, I wouldn't expect in a uh, super minority Republican situation, there'd be a dedicated constituency saying we can't overstimulate the economy, but are there concerns about this? Yes, and this is something that the Newsom administration has acknowledged and has talked about. Um, essentially, um, the uh, the Newsom administration has said that they believe that you know pouring this money, um, the money that they do plan to pour back into the economy from the surplus, 
um, that that's the right thing to do. Um, and that, you know, even though there are some concerns about raising inflation, that it, you know, it would provide relief to the people who are experiencing um, the brunt of the problems from inflation right now, um, whether that be high gas prices or high grocery prices. Um, so that that is absolutely a concern, but it's one that Democrats um, who, who run California have largely sort of waved off that this is in their view, the right thing to do um, because it's it's really an equity issue and this is an opportunity to help the people who are most hurt by inflation. Um, and so that's really the argument that they're making. Sophia Bolag is the California politics reporter for the San Francisco Chronicle. Thank you so much, Sophia. Thanks for having me. And now the spiel. It's an Antan twig, our audio experiment in correcting mistakes, connecting host to listener, or in a phrase, and I don't think I'm being too grandiose here, an Antoine Tig should tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Which brings me to my biggest mistake of the last three weeks. I was speaking of RFK speaking extemporaneously in Indianapolis the night that Martin Luther King was assassinated. And Robert F. Kennedy calmed the crowd and ended with a bit of Aeschylus, if we could hear that. To tame the savageness of man and make gentle the life of this world. Let us dedicate ourselves to that and say a prayer for our country and for our people. Thank you very much. Now the point is we can hear that. I asserted in my talk with Jeff Nussbaum that this tape didn't exist, but it did. And about 20 of you wrote in to tell me that. I would guess about, I don't know, 2,000 of you knew it. But thank you to the 20 who wrote in. So my bad. But also RFK's, well, I'm not going to say bad, but kind of off translation. I mean, he didn't go into the Greek. He was reading Edith Hamilton and what she translated uh, the end of that passage to be is, as you heard, wisdom through the awful grace of God. Could understand why a man whose two older brothers would be drawn to that phrase. It eventually ended up featured on the RFK Memorial in Arlington National Cemetery, that phrase. But think about Aeschylus. Think about the audience watching Agamemnon. They didn't have a monotheistic view of the world. And in fact, the original translation is wisdom through the, and it might not be awful grace, but of the gods. Hamilton, a Presbyterian, made it God. There were many mispronunciations in the last couple of weeks. Correlative was one, or maybe correlative. Correlative. Co-relative. My uncle, my aunt, they're both co-relatives. Anyway, Italian names seem to be somewhat correlative with my saying them wrong. Let us take Steve Buscemi. Why do I say Buscemi? Because he says Buscemi. Yeah, Buscemi is the way that my dad pronounced it. But I think in his family, they said Buscemi. And when I went to Sicily a few years ago with my family to the town where my grandfather was from, they say Buscemi. Thank you, Scott Miller, for linking me to that YouTube clip. I got to say, between Martin Scorsese and Steve Buscemi, I've got Ajita. 
I may also have given short shrift to the U.S. men's national soccer team. Jake Teach writes in, Pesca, or Pesca Gist, that's the show's Twitter handle. I'm at Pesca MI. Quick fact check. The men did qualify in 2014. That's true, my bad. And he also wrote, they're currently ranked in the top 20 by FIFA, about 15 or so, although most fans would agree they're around 20th to 25th, but not down near 40. I said somewhere between 20 and 40. Okay, I acknowledge the men's national soccer team is lower upper mediocre, not upper middle mediocre. They have certainly underperformed the women. In the last seven World Cups, the men, or the ones that the men actually qualified for, they've made it past the round of 16 once after failing to qualify in the nine World Cups before that. So break out a big foam finger with 15 digits on it. Woohoo, we're number 15. But you're right, I was too harsh, and I will be rooting for them to thrive in Qatar. Charles Hart writes, in discussing Rich Strike, this is the horse that won the Kentucky Derby, you mentioned the horse being in Lexington, Churchill Downs, and the Kentucky Derby's in Louisville. Yes, I know, but Lexington is a short 75 miles away, and I was trying to conjure just a nearby locale where a horse might be popping into a bar, hanging out on a street corner, just wondering if he'd get the call. You know, you're probably right. Louisville would have been the better joke. Alex Wittig writes in, and by the way, speaks for many, including Scott, Big Boss Ross, Scott Ross. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll bite that your nickname is Big Boss Scott Ross, but you're not Scott, Big Boss, Scott Ross, Ross. Are you? Okay, maybe you are. You know what? You're the boss, the big one at that. So these two folks write in, but actually Alex was saying, first time emailer, long time listener, you failed to point out the most important part of the song, Take Me Home, Country Roads, It's that the song isn't even about West Virginia. It's about Western Virginia and maybe Maryland. The only lyrics in the song that give us a clear location are as follows. Almost heaven, West Virginia, Blue Ridge Mountain, Shenandoah River. Life is old there, older than the trees, younger than the mountains, growing in a breeze. If you look at a map, Alex writes, the Shenandoah River is at best barely within the boundaries of West Virginia, where it extends for more than 70 miles into Virginia. And the final nail in the coffin is that it was written by two guys who are driving the winding roads of Montgomery County, Maryland. Yes, everything you say is true. But what might be going on is shame. Shame, I don't know if you're a Marylander, Alex, but maybe the two writers of the song, maybe they had an adherence to Maryland and they were ashamed of the song Maryland, My Maryland, which as I stated, called Abraham Lincoln a tyrant and referred to, quote, northern scum. You know, I would, I would say everyone should scour their own state song lyrics and worry if the word scum is anywhere in them. If scum is used in a non-lake skimming context, and I can see Minnesota, maybe Minnesota, using scum with permission, but no one else should use scum. You know, in order to remember this, I find that it helps to express myself in song. Here we go is to the tune of Maryland, my Maryland. Maryland, my Maryland, and all the others in the land. A rule of thumb, don't mention scum. If not too late, avoid decapitate. And Maryland, make this avowal. You will not use disembowel. Everyone could come back to the radio or whatever podcast player you listen to the gist on for this by hannah owens writing about the same 
Take Me Home Country Road song. She writes, there has been a trend in the 70s to rewrite songs from the U.S. with lyrics in local languages and subjects that were more relatable. She lives in Denmark, Copenhagen. She writes, my favorite Danish example of this weird subgenre is Yegvilbo pa Vesterbro by Teddy Edelman. The song is about wanting to live in Vesterbro, a neighborhood in Copenhagen which looks boring, but that's where his friends live and that's where the red light district is. Yes, I know, right near the train station. The one time I stayed in Copenhagen, I did not know that beforehand, but I certainly learned it. The red light district. Let's hear a little of that. Wondrous. So wondrous. Yet, I'm also conflicted. Because as you know, the Lobstar goes to the best listener. And I would say a link to this song certainly enhanced my life the most. It, in fact, deserves Lobstardom. It enriches my life with comfort and conviviality. I guess what the Danish would call huga. However, I wonder if I were to withhold the lobster, I could convince Hannah to follow through on this part of her email. Quote, there's also a Danish version of Copacabana, but that's another email for another episode. I mean, if I give her the lobster now, what's the incentive to get me that version of Copacabana, and especially if she could find the Danish version of the Pina Colada song, well then, Lobstar's all the way down. Although, if you do find a version of the Pina Colada song in Danish, I would suggest you submit your entry as a pseudonym or anonymously, which is actually how the Pina Colada song plays out. I don't want to ruin anything, but he's the guy who wrote it. So I do have to say, I've reflected upon this, and while I consider all of the gist listeners as Folkjegkender og Kamle Venner. Hannah deserves this special status as Lobstar of this and Twin Tig. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson is the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is the founder of Peachfish Advocate, Inc. and supporter of Prop 21, which is an initiative to prop up all the drunk girls who get wasted on their 21st birthday. The Gist is produced in collaboration with Lipson's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo, and thanks for listening.